This is the podcast where you can listen to my award-winning audiobook, But He Spit in My Coffee. I'm Carrie Williams, the author. Cindy Peller is our reader. If you haven't been with us since the beginning, I suggest going back to start with episode one. Five. The boys are sporting button-down shirts and pressed jeans. Kayla is wearing a dress with a burgundy velvet bodice and white foil bottom. Delano is wearing a dark suit, and I have on dress slacks and a rose-colored top. As the courthouse elevator opens and we shuffle out, we look every bit the beautiful forever family I've always dreamed of being. In reality, Devin is clutching at my pant leg, hiding behind me from Kayla's fierce glower. They don't seem to have a natural sibling bond, which makes sense, as this is the first time ever that they've lived together. More than once over the last four months, I've watched Kayla chomp down on Devin's back and him smack her with toys. But none of this can dampen my spirits. We made it. Adoption day is finally here. The one thing I'm sure of is that everything will resolve itself after the adoption is finalized. This is our beginning. Delana walks ahead with Sam and Amaya's, but I pull Devin and Kayla aside. I kneel down to their level. Her bit me. Devin shows me a forensics-worthy impression of teeth on his right forearm. Her did it. Kayla clutches the rainbow fish in her hands. She pinches her lips together and shakes her head. When Devin had first shown me the bite mark in the car on the way over, I wasn't sure who was telling the truth. Now, looking at his proffered arm, it's obvious that he's at least been keeping the bite mark fresh with his own teeth. Her did it, he sniffles. Kayla glares at him. Kayla, go with Daddy. I say. After a gentle nudge in that direction, she trails after him. I didn't do it, Devin says with a note of hysteria. I pull Devin into my arms. He stills. No one's in trouble. This is our special day, remember? He looks at me with that fawn-like, shy smile I've come to adore. Let's go inside so you can become mine forever, I say, and take his hand. He skips down the hall beside me. Lakita meets us at the courtroom door with congratulations on our big day. I invited Phyllis to the adoption hearing also, but she said it's best for Devin to not have any further contact with her if he's going to adjust to his new family. I don't agree, but it's her decision to make, and there's nothing more I can do. Inside the courtroom, Delano and I arrange the four kids sitting between us at the large conference table, and Lakita sits on my other side. Kayla opens her book on the tabletop, and the foil scales of the rainbow fish shimmer. What do you have there, Michaela? Lakita asks. Kayla lifts the front of the book so Lakita can see the cover. Oh, that's one of my favorites. She brought it with her when she came to us, I say. But do you know what's strange? I reach over and lift the first pages of the book, just enough for Lakita to see that Adriana is written in marker on the inside front cover. Lakita begins nodding her head. She turns her face toward me and says, 
That's what that family who tried to adopt them before you called her. What? I exclaim and cover my mouth apologetically when the judge looks up. He's sitting at his desk in one corner of the room, flipping through paperwork. In a near whisper, I ask, someone else tried to adopt them? No one told you? I shake my head. It wasn't anywhere in the blue books, either. The mother wasn't able to have children of her own and had always wanted to name a little girl Adriana. She said Kayla didn't know her name, so they started calling her Adriana. When was this? I ask. A few months before they were placed with you? I think of how Kayla was so particular about not wanting to be called Michaela. There's no way she didn't know her own name. I'm reeling from this new information and want to know more. I ask, what happened? Why didn't they end up going through with the adoption? Lakita leans her head closer to my ear and whispers, One day, the daycare saw welts all over Devin's legs. They called the caseworker, and she came and picked them up right from daycare. I suck in a breath. Lakita pulls back and gives me a knowing look, then leans close to my ear again. Devin and Michaela never went back to that home after that day. The mother was heartbroken. I heard they got a divorce over it. Our conversation ends abruptly, and Lakita straightens in her chair as the judge stands from his desk and moves toward the conference table. He's a short, bald man. On the paperwork that's passed me, I recognize his name from the blue books. This is the same judge who signed the order terminating Sarah's parental rights. He begins the proceedings by asking why we want to adopt Devin and Kayla. I'm a shy introvert, and I don't like speaking in front of groups, but I've prepared for this. Devin and Kayla have been living with us for almost four months. We love them and want them to be part of our family. The judge nods and looks to Delano. And you, sir? Devon and Michaela are like our other children whom we dearly love. God has blessed us by bringing them into our family. We are honored to be their parents, he says ceremoniously. The judge nods and begins. Adoption is forever. Today, Devon and Michaela are becoming your children, the same as birth children. There is no difference. He gives a lengthy monologue that he's clearly intoned many times before. You cannot return an adopted child any more than you can return a birth child, he concludes, warning that if we ever try to, we'll be prosecuted. I'm so offended. Why would he even say something like that at an adoption hearing? It's just plain rude. The judge flips through the files as the courtroom waits and watches in silence. I'm also adopting Sam today. I'm his mom without the paperwork, but want him to understand how committed I am to all of my children, adopted, step, and birth children alike. The judge signs off on all three adoptions. We meet with our lawyer in the hallway, and he hands us new birth certificates for the kids. It's a bit surreal. On them, I'm listed as their mother, and Delano as their father. 
with these, no one would ever know they aren't our birth children. The lawyer reminds us that we'll receive Devin and Kayla's new social security cards in the mail. It's a closed adoption, and these completely new identities will keep Sarah from ever finding them. Devin and Kayla have been classified as special needs by DCF solely because they're biracial, which makes adoptive homes for them harder to find. Because of this, they're qualified for Medicaid until they're 18, adoption fee reimbursement, and a small stipend. We have good health insurance through our job, so we won't need the Medicaid. I think of declining, but the kids are tired and I let it go. After accepting congratulations, I take Devin and Kayla by their hands. Delano carries Amayas, who has fallen asleep, and Sam hefts the diaper bag onto one shoulder. We walk out through the courthouse doors into the bright sunshine, a forever family. Six. A few months before the adoption, Hurricane Wilma was forecast to decrease in intensity as it came ashore. Instead, it sucker-punched South Florida. Like so many others, we were woefully unprepared. We were without power for a week, and I developed a painful abscess on my stomach. I walked to an emergency Red Cross vehicle and stood in line for hours. The nurse said it was only a boil and gave me a black tar-like ointment that she promised would clear it right up. The boil healed, our electricity got turned back on, and life went back to normal. But I decided I was never going to go through hurricane season again. After that, my identical twin sister Becky and I dreamed up the idea of moving to the same neighborhood and raising our kids together. She and her husband, Jason, have two children, Jacob and Abby, who are close in age to ours. At the time, they were living in New Jersey. Becky and I looked for an affordable city with jobs and a good place to raise kids. Delano insisted that we couldn't move anywhere cold, so I told him a little white lie. It never gets cold enough to snow in Charlotte. With that, we put a pin in it. Then, Tina had called about Devin and Kayla, and we put our moving plans on hold. As soon as the adoption was finalized, we listed our house. Now I'm spending every spare moment packing and cleaning. My knees ache from kneeling on the marble tile as I lean into the oven and scrub the inside. Last I checked, Sam is hiding in his bedroom to escape babysitting duties, while the little kids chase through the house, over the sofa, under the table, and in and around the cardboard obstacle course of moving boxes. They're like a litter of puppies, play fighting, squealing, and nipping. Looking up from the stove, I still my hand and listen. The house is quiet, suspiciously quiet. I grab a paper towel to wipe my hands and hurry toward the living room. I find the kids in my bedroom. Kayla is crouched behind Amias on my bed. She is holding the black marker that I've been using to label moving boxes, poised over Amias's back. They're both wearing boys' superhero undies, backwards as usual, and tattoos cover their arms, bellies, backs, and faces. Devin scurries over to my side, his eyes as wide as my mouth is open. 
I can literally taste the astringent smell of the Sharpie. My face contorts between laughing and crying. Then I start to panic that the ink might seep into their bloodstream. I call the poison control center, and the operator actually snickers as he tells me that they'll be fine. Plopping my little ink slingers into the tub, wearing their undies like bathing suits, I scrub at the marks with soap and a washcloth. Devin begins picking at the edges of the wallpaper while watching me out of the corner of his eyes. I brush his hand away from the wall as I scold Amias and Kayla. Soap doesn't work, and I ask Devin to hand me the toothpaste. Dubiously, he holds out the tube. You're such a good helper, I tell him. The crit of the toothpaste helps fade the tattoos, but they don't disappear completely. The worst of the marks are on Amaya's and Kayla's faces because I can't cover them up with clothing. I spend our last few days in Florida explaining, no, my kids aren't covered in bruises, it's only marker. They did it to themselves. Our new home in North Carolina is in a small, diverse neighborhood close to playgrounds, schools, and the city's bike trail. It sits next to Becky and Jason's house, and we create a stepping stone path to connect our front doors. My kids love to play at Auntie Becky's house. They never knock, and she never locks her door. You're always invited, she insists. They spend many happy hours next door playing with their cousins, Jacob and Abby. They ride scooters inside the house when it rains, and Auntie Becky doesn't complain when the glass in her picture frames gets broken by a soccer ball. Becky and Jason get a spaniel puppy and tell my kids that, of course, he belongs to them, too. The cousins all agree to name him Ben Ten after their favorite cartoon. Devin asks, Season one or season two? They agree to season one, and Becky and Jason submit the official AKC paperwork with the dog's full name as Ben Ten, Season 1. But everyone calls him Ben for short. We soon fence our backyards together to create a double-sized yard, perfect for soccer, stomp rockets, and an unexpected snowman. That year's snow melts quickly, leaving behind a mucky mess just as we're setting out on an off-season vacation in Myrtle Beach. We rent a resort suite that is large enough for our communal family. The hotel has an indoor lazy river and swimming pool, indoor and outdoor hot tubs, and direct access to the beach. Becky and I sit poolside, wrapped in towels, watching as Sam gathers the little kids in the shallow end of the indoor pool. They crouch with their fingers ready to pinch their noses as he counts down. Three, two, one, go! They all duck their heads under the water, except Sam, who stays poised just above the water surface, watching, waiting. The little kids are wearing life jackets, and their bodies bob face down. Kayla's long curls fan out around her. Sam's timing is uncanny. The moment the little kids start to gasp up out of the water for air, Sam slips underwater. Jacob floats comically on his back, unable to roll back over or move to a standing position with the life jacket swallowing up his tiny frame. Amias, Kayla, and Devin point and jabber excitedly as they watch Sam's incredible feat, 
of holding his breath underwater so much longer than they can. When he finally springs up, they yell and splash at him and call for a rematch. Then another. Sam wins every time. As I watch, I find myself wishing they always played together this nicely. Earlier this morning, we were on the beach and the kids were burying Uncle Jason in the sand, an activity he was enjoying every bit as much as they were. Becky and I were lounging on beach chairs and sipping Starbucks iced chai tea lattes beneath floppy sun hats. Spitting sand out of his mouth, Jason had called over to my sister. Hey, Beck, remind me to bring the big garden shovel next time we come. I shook my head, imagining the potential disaster of the kids swinging a metal shovel bigger than themselves over his head. They built a sprawling sandcastle, too running back and forth to the water's edge for buckets of wet sand and water. It was an idyllic holiday at the beach, until Amaya started frantically wiping at his eyes. He stumbled toward me, crying that Devin had thrown sand in his face. Devin was squatting and piling sand over his feet. He was pretending to not be paying attention to Amaya's hysterics. Devin, I'd said sternly, do not throw sand. I didn't do it, he whined. Before long, Amias had scurried back to the castle and Jason said to Devin, Buddy, can you help fill up this moat? Devin eagerly ran for the shoreline. I watched as he happily carried buckets of water up to fill the moat. That's one of the paradoxes I've noticed about Devin. He uses baby talk and acts much younger than his age but he's surprisingly industrious. I resumed my conversation with my sister and let the kids' voices and laughter be carried away from me in the beach breeze. Before long, Amias was crying and stumbling toward me again. I didn't see what happened myself, but I heard Jason say, Bud, you gotta be careful. I couldn't hear Devin's reply over Amias's sobs. Then Jason said, I know you didn't do it on purpose, but you need to be careful. Amias's eyes were poofy, red, and watery. Cry it out, I encouraged him while holding his hands away from his face. I called Devin over and told him to sit next to me and time out. Devin insisted that he had not thrown sand in Amias's face, even accidentally. There was a breeze. It was possible that Devin was telling the truth and the wind had blown the sand into Amaya's face. Before I could make up my mind, Devin began wailing loudly and kicking sand into the air. I told my sister I was going to have to take him back to the hotel room to stay with Delano. I took Devin by the arm to lead him up the beach, but he went limp and flopped onto the sand. I really had no choice. I couldn't let him think he could get his way by throwing a fit. I carried him as he thrashed in my arms. I was so embarrassed. All the way up the elevator, he carried on. Down the hall, he bawled and tantrumed in my arms. The moment I swiped the key card and swung the door to the suite open, Devin's body stilled. His wailing stopped other than his hiccuping sobs. I looked at his flushed face in astonishment. I set him down and led the way to the sitting room. Delano had hissed his teeth, clearly thinking I was overreacting. I'd left them, 
unsure of what had just happened. Back on the beach, I'd described to Becky the complete transformation Devin had made as soon as we entered the suite. Maybe he thought Delana would spank him, she said. I shrugged, but didn't think so. Delano doesn't have knee-jerk reactions like that. He would give Devin several chances before reaching that point. Devin has sat through enough of Delano's mind-numbing lectures to know that. That sand incident happened several hours ago, and now the kids are all playing happily as if nothing happened. I unwrap my towel and drape it over my chair. Are you going in? Becky asks, looking up from her paperback. I'm going to take the kids to the deep end to practice swimming. I wade into the pool, and the kids rush toward me, eager to take a turn. Kayla unsnaps her life jacket and wraps her arms around my neck as I carry her deeper into the water until it's up to my chest. She pushes at me. Let go! I can't swim! Let go! At her insistence, I do. She paddles her arms furiously but still sinks toward the bottom of the pool, all the while smiling up at me with her eyes wide open. I sweep her back up into my arms. I can swim, she pouts and tries to pull away from me again. Next, Amias lays on his back with his eyes shut. My fingertips support his back, and I tell him to relax and pretend he's sleeping. His lithe body doesn't float naturally. You don't have any blubber, I tease him. That's why you can't float. When it's Devin's turn, he wraps his arms and legs in an octopus hug around my body. I won't let go of you, I promise, I say, trying to extricate myself so he can practice floating on his back. He shakes his head and digs his fingernails into my skin. I want to show him that he's safe, but after several minutes I realize he's just not ready. As I carry him back toward the wading pool... I let myself enjoy the unexpected closeness. Back in the shallow end, I secure his life jacket once again, and he heads over to play with his siblings and cousins. Standing back by my chair, I wrap myself in my towel. Did you see baby Amias? I ask my sister. He's so skinny he can't float. He's four years old, not a baby, she says, laughing at me. Later that evening, Becky and I leave the kids with our husbands and sneak away to the hot tub. Before we reach the elevator, the door to our suite whooshes open. Kayla calls after us. Wait for me, Mommy. Wait for me. I motion to her. Come on. A smile darts across her face. Her purple flip-flops snap as she rushes toward us. She's holding the straps of her orange and yellow swimsuit for me to tie in a bow behind her neck. Curls have escaped her ponytail and fuzz at the edges of her face and nape. I push the elevator button, and Kayla looks up at me with old soul eyes and a reprimand. I told you, girls stick together. 7. On Sam's 13th birthday, the little kids chorus, Happy birthday to you, cha-cha-cha, in a cacophony around him. It's tradition, and the more off-key, the better. With five kids aged five and under, plus Sam, my sister and I invent what we playfully call speed birthdays. Store-bought cupcakes, frenzied present opening, and singing happy birthday, all in 30 minutes or less. 
Speed birthdays, like all messy events, take place at Becky's house. Delano hands out juice boxes, and the kids wiggle in their seats as they wait for their cupcakes. Going in age order, Uncle Jason starts with Abby, who is the youngest. She immediately begins licking the frosting, and I reach over and swipe her wispy blonde hair back behind her ears. Jason passes the next cupcake to Jacob, who grabs it with an impish grin. Don't feed them to the dog, Jason warns as Ben circles around the kid's toes, hoping to be past a treat. Jason gives cupcakes to Kayla and Amias. Here you go, bud, he says, handing the next one to Devin, while eyeing Sam mischievously. With a flourish and a peal of laughter, he smashes a cupcake into Sam's face. The kids roar with laughter, and Sam's chair clatters to the floor as he chases after Uncle Jason. After the ensuing chaos calms, Delano sneaks out of the front door to go home, and the kids go upstairs to play. Becky takes a cup of tea and sinks into the sofa, while Jason flops into a nearby armchair. I clear up the paper plates and crumpled juice boxes. Jason winks at me. Wish my wife was a little more like her sister. Oh my God, I forgot to tell you, Becky says to me, ignoring Jason, teasing about her dislike of cleaning. I was at the grocery store this morning, and the cashier looked at me funny and said, Weren't you in here earlier today? I realized it was you she'd seen. Jason snickers, but I groan. How embarrassing. I wipe frosting from the table with a sponge as Becky continues. When I told her I have an identical twin sister, she was like, There are two of you? There's a crashing sound and pounding of feet down the stairs. Kayla hurtles around the corner with Devin on her heels. It's not true, Devin cries. Her's lying on me. He, she jabs a finger at Devin, wants to play. I raise my hands to quiet them. Why can't he play? He picked his nose, Kayla says with all the indignation of a teenager. Devin swings his head from side to side in a wide arc. I did not. I did not. He's gross, Kayla wails. When it comes to telling the truth, all bets are on Kayla. But what I say is, he's not gross. Kayla, you need to say sorry. And Devin, go wash your hands, then you can play. But I didn't, Devin insists. I flip on the bathroom light. It's not a big deal. Just go wash them. Devin stares, unmoving and unblinking. Kayla has her arms crossed over her chest with her mouth clamped shut, and I realize she's not going to say sorry. Okay, let's go home then, I say. Devin melts into a heap and beats on the laminate floor with his fists. I haul him to his feet and walk him toward the door. What about Amias? Kayla demands as she trails after Devin and me across the stepping stone path back to our house. Amias isn't part of this fight. I plop Devin onto a kitchen chair and point to another where Kayla sits. As the kitchen timer ticks out five minutes, Kayla clamps her mouth shut, but Devin continues to blubber and fuss. When the time is up, Kayla mumbles and, I'm sorry. Okay, you can go back over, I tell her. She scrambles out of her seat and hugs me around the legs. We'll be over in a few minutes, I say. And she rushes out, letting the front door slam behind her.
I tell Devin, go wash your hands, then we'll go back over too. He doesn't move. Come on, I'll help you. Devin screws his eyes closed, juts his chin into the air, and brays. I look at him, not understanding. He'd rather not go back to Becky's house than do something as simple as wash his hands? Do you hear this? I call to Delano, who is in the living room watching TV. All this because he doesn't want to wash his hands. If you can hear, you must feel, he calls back in response. I've heard Delano say that one too many times as warning of a spanking. If you cannot hear, you must feel. But Devin keeps his fussing low, and Delano is not disturbed enough to come deal with him. Over the months, Devin's behavior at Becky's house only grows more concerning. He sneaks around and goes through cabinets and drawers. Of course, Becky and I know some of this is normal with kids. But with Devin, it's different. He doesn't rummage around in a drawer and leave it open with the contents dribbling out. He's sneaky. No matter how fun the fun is, he steals away on his own. Then he startles if we walk in on him. He slides tampons, a stray earring, and other treasures into his underwear and takes them back home to his bedroom. Becky catches him eating out of her trash can. After that, I don't let him go next door to play unless I'm there to supervise him. One morning, Amias and Kayla are next door, and Sam is at school. Delano is watching Devin, who is sitting at the table coloring with crayons. I walk into the kitchen to pour myself a fresh cup of coffee, and Devin looks at me with pleading eyes. I can read them as readily as written lines of a book. You know why you can't go, I answer. I'll take you over after I'm done working, when I can keep an eye on you. The house is quiet, other than the hum of my computer booting up as I settle into my office chair. Fortunately, when we moved to North Carolina, my boss asked me to continue working remotely. I'm working from home full time, but I cannot watch the kids at the same time. For this reason, Delano isn't going to look for a job until after the kids are in school. It doesn't make sense to pay for daycare for three kids. The login screen on my computer flashes, bringing me out of my thoughts. In focused work mode, I make good progress on several projects before realizing the time. I head downstairs for lunch and find Devin playing quietly in the playroom. He comes out holding a drawing of a bright rainbow with a family beneath. Dad is wearing a green box on top and blue rectangles on his legs. Amaya stands next to Kayla, whose hair is a halo of loops. I laugh and point to it. Look at Kayla's hair. It looks just like her. Devin grins. He's drawn himself with short, light brown hair. I have long, dark hair and a pink dress. What's that? I ask, pointing to a round scribble on my torso. Your coffee? I love it, I say putting my arms around his shoulders and giving him a squeeze. I make Devin lunch of a PB&J sandwich, a handful of chips, and some grapes. I bring it to him and pick up his drawing from the table. Can I hang this on the refrigerator? He nods, his mouth full of sandwich. I love that you drew my coffee, 
I say, as I use a magnet advertising a local urgent care to affix it to the stainless steel refrigerator. I grab the sponge and rub it a smear near the handle. With all the little fingers around our house, no matter how hard I try, it's impossible to keep it shiny. I glance up at Devon. At first, I'm unsure of what I'm seeing. Is he? He is. He's pushing his fingers into his mouth. Now he's vomiting all over the table. If you like this podcast, please leave a five-star review to help others find it.